welcome to another episode on the Exxon Minds podcast. And today we're speaking to Dr. Giles Morrison. Now, Dr. Giles is a very, very interesting person and someone I've been really looking forward to getting onto the podcast. He's, you could call it the pioneer of clinical UX. He's also a UX mentor, career coach, international speaker. So he's got a lot of experiences. He's extremely talented as well and a really deep person and someone you could spend hours talking to and that's what I wanted to do on this podcast. Obviously, we had limited time. Um, I hope you enjoy uh, all the nuggets and the things that he brings up. And if you are interested in uh, clinical UX, that it gives you that needed spark uh, and inspiration to continue on your journey. So sit back, enjoy, and let's get into this podcast. Okay, so I'd like to welcome Dr. Jazz Morrison onto the podcast. Um, it's nice to have you here. I, I think we've been in contact actually for a while on LinkedIn. You were there in my days of transitioning over to UX. So it's nice to, to finally have you on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No problem at all. No problem at all. Um, so you're a UX clinical strategist, um, as far as I'm aware at the moment. And what does that That's kind right. of involve if you want to do a bit of an intro into what you're doing now? Sure. So um, I've been working in the field of clinical UX here now for just over nine years. So this okay. is after first working as a medical doctor. And this career in clinical UX really is very much similar to what you do as a UX professional. But my area of focus is on the experiences that clinicians and patients have with healthcare technology and services. So I still have to use Figma or whatever design tool of choice we're using these days. Um, I still use all kinds of research methods, but a big part of my work is to identify clinical risk, risk either to clinicians making mistakes, which could lead to harm or death of patients or even harm or death okay. to themselves. Um, and indeed, clinical risk to the patients themselves where they, when they're interacting with a product or service, could be harmed or, or killed, mm. unfortunately, or at least wow. their treatment or health outcomes aren't as optimized as they should be. Mm. Another massive part of the work I do is medical um, legal ethics as well. So okay. there's a big component of, well, we can do something, but should we be doing it? Okay. Um, the other massive part as well is behavior change. I would say behavior change is important in UX in all industries, but particularly mm. in healthcare, where we're trying to at times encourage clinicians to use technology that they've never used before, mm. patients to use technology as a first touch point yeah. with healthcare as opposed to speaking with their doctor or pharmacist or a receptionist mm. to book an appointment <laughs> this massive changes for people that goes against what they're used to and that's what i would say uh, some of the reasons why it's a lot more complicated working in clinical ux than ux mm. in a few other industries but yeah. yeah like i said i've been in this field now for just over nine years i worked as a doctor okay. for three years beforehand and i loved working as a doctor but I felt there was more I could be doing for patients. Mm. I fell into UX as a result. Um, yeah. But it's the best career decision I've made going into, into UX for sure. That's cool. That's nice to hear. Also, I imagine from the listeners as well that are thinking as well to to move to UX. Um, mm -hmm. And also, like from, from what you've just said now, like, it, like obviously we know the UX uh, is everywhere in the sense of it, it's something that affects people's lives. And but more so in in medical like in healthcare etc because like you said um like i'm like i imagine like it 
like even a small like a thing can mean the difference between a patient being harmed and not so there's a, kind of a lot mm -hmm. riding on your on your role yeah i would say so um i think what's a challenge for is there's still quite a poor understanding of what a uxer does so mm. as much as there can be almost instant recognition of well if you're a doctor giles and you're doing ux you must be able to do a lot because of your medical training but mm. there still can be issues with actually being given the freedom to do the real work that needs to be done of a clinical ux professional which oh, yeah. similar to any other ux series make sure that there's evidence that backs up the decisions yeah. that you're making it can't be guesswork it can't be well we know generally no, this no. is how things work like even if you are copying a very similar or tried and tested um, design pattern, there's still some sort of usability testing or real life evidence that of needs course, to be yeah. utilized just to confirm that you're doing the right thing. So, uh, yeah, um, but particularly like in, in healthcare, there's all this talk of using AI. There's a lot mm -hmm. of talk of generally trying to shift the patient's care towards something that's more patient control, which I'm for, like, I agree that we should have the mm. general public be able to manage their health a bit more, but mm. we can't completely remove clinicians from the equation. There's still a lot yeah. going on with healthcare where you need a specialist. And so one of my tasks now, which is quite a challenge, is one of the reasons I go into clinical week strategies, getting companies, getting, you know, small teams, large organizations, understanding where are their clinical risks, where there are really actually opportunities to cause failure here. Mm. Yeah, you might make some money, but mm. you could be doing some serious damage in the process <laughs> uh, because yeah. like you said it's, it is high risk you know if you're telling mm. someone to not use a clinician to assess their health and the system makes a mistake and someone actually gets the wrong diagnosis they get delay in treatment or actually they deteriorate yeah. and then when they do see a clinician they die like this is an avoidable death this is avoidable harm if mm. the design of the product of the service that wraps around it was better yeah. yeah, that's a that's a major challenge I, I have to try and overcome yeah. with some of my clients at times. Yeah, I can imagine. So, like with your current role at the moment, so you, would you say that you're in more of an advisory role in the sense of are you doing that hands-on research, mm. design, etc., or are you focused more on the strategy of the organization, maybe setting up teams? Um, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a mixture. So, as a strategist. A lot of my work is really, as mentioned before, relating to clinical risk, but mm. also risk assessing the success of projects in general. Right. Okay. So as much as there may or may not be clinical risk to patients, that doesn't mean that uh, the business case for a digital health project or a new service in healthcare could be successful. Like there, there may be holes with it, which mm. aren't fully understood by the people that are working on it. So yeah. my job as well there is looking at well, where's their risk to the business? Where's yeah. their risk of project failure? Mm. And particularly where they've not used UX resource before, what does it mean to use a UXer? So how many UXers are going to need? What skills, mm -hmm. what techniques are going to be used? What knowledge are they going to need to have? What technologies, tools are they going to need to actually use to get the job done? What sort of budget yeah. is going to be appropriate here? What's a realistic timeline? I'm sure mm. you faced it. Most people yeah. who've worked in UX, they've been asked to do UX work in, you know, anywhere from um, 75% to even 25% of the amount of time they really need. 
to do oh, the yeah. work. <laughs> or they've been told to actually not do any research, any meaningful research, should I say. So there's yeah. there's been no meaningful primary research. There might have been some secondary research, but even secondary research, I yeah. find, tends to be um, not as common as it needs to be. Yeah, so, no. as a researcher myself, yeah. that's galling to hear <laughs> when, mm-hmm. uh, when researchers like uh is skipped or like advised to be skipped because yeah like going back to what you said before like you just create something based on a lot of assumptions or or just well they did it that way or that seems to work let's do it that way mm-hmm. but like you don't know if your users are going to use it in the same way or if it's going to come up, like uh, if it's going to be used in the same way like so mm-hmm. yeah like design without research for me is just is is a setup for failure so yeah always always without fail and this isn't something that is new we've known this probably since the dawn of time there's always has to be some evidence that backs up what you're doing because especially in my line of work with healthcare when things Mm. go wrong people die people get seriously harmed preventably Mm. you know unacceptable deaths unacceptable harm happens Mm. so people should care about this a bit more but another truth just a reality of healthcare is that if it was based on people doing what they thought was right Mm. we wouldn't have the atrocities that we're we're seeing in healthcare at times Mm. unfortunately there is a lot of decisions that are made that are completely based on profit based on how does it ensure that you know the really people's in power make sure they've made their money so yeah. that's a lot of my work as, as a strategist mm. is looking at all of these different variables that are putting the benefit of the clinicians and patients, their lives, their health at risk. How do I lower that risk? So yeah. there are some of this stuff that I can identify very quickly. There's other times I have to go through a much more formal process to identify mm. the risk, whether it's heuristic evaluation, task analysis, interviews, mm. focus groups, observational studies, definitely mm. secondary research because it's very rare you work on a project and nobody else has ever done anything like it. Yeah, um, I still recall <laughs> my uh, master's thesis was specifically looking at people living with sickle cell disease. This is a hereditary blood condition where the red cells go into a crescent moon shape when they give off oxygen. So yeah. they've cycled around the body, they've given off their oxygen and if there's levels of stress or illness or cold weather, these sickled red cells can accumulate and get stuck in very tiny blood vessels, causing a lot of pain. And when this happens, it can also cause blockages that can be fatal in different um, uh, parts of the body. Mm. So basically, this is to be treated as a medical emergency. Mm. And I did the secondary research and because this population, they tend to be predominantly people from um, uh, black African Caribbean community. Okay. They, there's either issues of racism, issues of ignorance, mm. or it's a rare disease. That's what do you do with this sort of disease? We don't know. We don't seen it before, or yeah. a failure to recognise that people really need to have very strong pain relief, morphine, opioid pain relief. Mm. Um, and there's times where actually a lot of these patients feel quite victimised, um, mm. belittled because people aren't believing what they the issue they're having. And the secondary research was so overwhelmingly, um, well, compatible with each other. Like they were all saying the same message. In fact, mm. some of the articles I was reading in journal publications were in themselves literary reviews. So mm. they have already done 
you know, the same secondary research <laughs> I have done. Yeah. And it was all so comprehensive saying the same message. I didn't interview not one patient for that research because there mm. was nothing new I would learn. There was nothing yeah. speaking to them about their personal experiences was going to say anything different. It was just going to mm. confirm all the issues that the secondary research yeah. show. So just an example of how secondary research can be so powerful and so quick. That secondary yeah. research took me the equivalent of a couple of days, really. And even wow. then, I had yeah. a lot of evidence to point towards a particular conclusion after mm. a few hours of work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you have to, you know, conduct these different types of research upfront, as we all already know. But mm. a lot of my work is heuristic evaluation to look for risk, um, mm -hmm. task analysis, observational studies, interviews. Um, again, mm. to look where's their risk to patients, risk to clinicians. Mm. Um, that's cool. I tend to supervise the work that's done by juniors as well, um, okay. particularly my students. So I teach mm -hmm. um, a clinical UX course for students. Mm -hmm. Get someone who's either come from a clinical background, a UX background, or someone who's mm -hmm. even new to clin clinical practice and to UX right. work. Um, they go through a variety of units and modules of content and training material. Mm -hmm and classroom teaching one-to-ones with me and obviously okay. assignments as well to test what they've learned in yeah. also work at the level of around a junior to midweight uxer okay. if they already worked as a uxer then this might also get them more to midweight to senior because okay. the courses always take about a year or more for them to complete okay. it's very okay. very intense quite full on mm. so it's teaching so this course... me busy ah sorry mm -hmm. I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I was just saying that teaching is a big part of the work that I do mm. along some primary research methods, but a lot of my work is consulting strategy work okay. and uh, sharing my knowledge with others, really. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I just I wanted to ask about this this course that you run or this mm. uh, this school. Um, so to be a student, that you don't need to have come from a medical background. You, even if you've come from a, a, an unrelated UX field, you could still apply mm. for the school and get into clinical yeah. UX. That's right, because the nature of clinical UX, of course, me coming from a doctor background gives me a lot of insight, a lot of knowledge yeah, that yeah. simply yeah. completing my medical degree provided. And even mm. more so when I was working as a doctor as well. But mm. you can teach that, the aspects that's the so You don't need to know how paracetamol and ibuprofen reduces <laughs> fever and um, pain in a patient. Um, you don't even need to know that those drugs even have that effect. You do need to know though that um, patients can have a variety of signs and symptoms which are associated with the disease. And if mm. you know the specific diseases that you're trying to treat, you need to have an awareness of mm. what those um, uh actual signs and symptoms could be because mm. if you're going to track them in an app if you're going to ask questions about them you need to mm. know what they are so <laughs> that's what's taught is like what's a general process of trying to assess for health um mm. which is beyond what people experience even if they've seen the doctor because we all know you go to a doctor they ask you some questions they you know prod you in places and they've got their stethoscope <laughs> out and everyone knows about the tendon hammer even though they rarely even get hit by a tendon <laughs> hammer banging them on the knee 
we know of this stuff, but what's actually the doctor thinking when they're going through that process? Yeah. That's, for example, one of the topics that I teach the students is to understand okay. that. Because then when they're like, okay, I want a digital tool that mm. can help do this. Mm. So they have to be thinking, well, what, what is this actually involved? What, what do I need to keep in mind? Yeah. So that, that's one of the many topics that they have to learn is what goes through the mind of a clinician when mm. they are actually assessing a patient, making a diagnosis, formulating a treatment plan, treating them. So obviously, mm. if you've gone to medical school, gone to nursing school, studied one of the other um, healthcare, clinical healthcare professional roles, you would learn this stuff, but it can yeah. be taught outside of those settings as well. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's just in case anybody who is listening is thinking about getting into a clinical UX and maybe they're mm. put off thinking, oh, I've not got a medical background. It's it's nice to know that those things can be taught and it's yeah. not absolutely necessary. That's right. Most of my students, about 90% of them or so, have never had any experience with healthcare other than as a wow, patient okay. or the loved one of a, of a patient. So quite a few clinicians okay. um, yeah. will become students. Some of my current students are clinicians um, as well. But like mm. I said, most of them don't come from a clinical background. Okay. Um, I think what is useful is if you have done UX before. But again, if you've yeah. never done UX before, you've never done any sort of short course, that is taught as well. Um, okay. One thing I have been very vocal about, and I think it's quite an interesting segue to another topic point for us then. <laughs> there are sometimes students come and they're like, oh yeah, I've done a boot camp. Not all boot camps mm. are equal. And... To be brutally honest, I don't recommend taking the Google UX course. I don't think it's yeah. particularly useful. Um, okay. The main reason for me is the fact that your work is assessed by another student, mm. which just blows my mind to think that yeah. that is suitable. Um, I'm not saying you can't get advice and guidance and feedback from fellow students. In fact, you should. But mm. if that's the only form of no. assessment, then then that's yeah. a problem. That's, that's a, it's huge, a bit risky. <laughs> yeah. So like yeah. if someone's told me they've done like the Google UX course or some other bootcamp where on questioning them, they clearly don't know some, some mm. basics. They haven't done certain techniques. Like there's a lot of bootcamps. They don't teach about heuristic evaluation. They mm. don't actually explain um, what a thematic analysis actually is that they, they don't really yeah. have an understanding of this um, yeah. where they know how to use Figma but they deliberately don't use actual and the excuse is it's too hard. The, the <laughs> main reason you say you don't use actual is that you don't have a license. You've never been taught to use it. It shouldn't be, mm -hmm. you tried it, it was too complicated. It's not that complicated mm -hmm. if you try. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you're yeah. trying to do proper prototypes, you would need something like actual. You don't have to use it yeah. for most projects. I'll be honest, you don't. Yeah. And they have the ability for you to create a calculator like from scratch, mm. like all the different calculations, you can have all those yeah. buttons. Like no one needs to do that. It's not necessary. <laughs> but the if point you want, is, you can. yeah. But the point is, saying if you're doing a prototype, mm. you need to be able to test out the the so-called unhappy paths. What are the paths someone's going to take when they face an error? Then you need some yeah. feedback from the system to correct from their error. You need to test this. <laughs> Of and course, yeah. tends to be much better for prototyping for those sort of um uh purposes so yeah the point still stands if if someone um still has quite limited ux um knowledge even if they've developed some practical skills 
the theory mm. needs to be strong as well and so i'll be saying yeah. to them well, here's some additional training material we'll have some additional one-to-ones to get you up to speed because yeah. we as a massive problem in the industry we've got a lot of people who know how to use figma but they don't know why they're making this prototype they don't know why they're using yeah. this design pattern they're not coming yeah. up with designs that's based on evidence that the researchers no. have come up with they've done any research for and yeah. we don't have enough people who are giving constructive feedback on how to improve these um, designs that are being made and even mm. improve the processes that we're following to do UX work. Yeah. So students Completely get agree. proper education on my course to try and compensate yeah. for that lack of uh, of way of working <laughs> and, and education mm. otherwise. That's good. That's good. It's nice to hear. Um, I just wanted to go also go back to you. Um, so... Uh, in this conversation, you mentioned that before you were uh, a physician, a doctor, mm-hmm. like what made you want to transition to becoming a UX clinical strategist? What, was it, uh, I don't know, you're just interested in behavior, how people use mm. medical tools, or was it just, uh, I don't know, like uh, a desire to to change from what you were doing before and UX just seemed yeah, to so... land on your lap? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I didn't know about UX before I left medicine. I worked as a doctor for three years. Okay. I loved working with patients. I really, it was an honor really to be able to help people in some of their most vulnerable, challenging times in life. Mm. Um, and some of the most joyous, like when it's delivering babies, for example. Mm. But I was definitely there when people have died um, or close to death um, or, you know, when they're really, really in a very bad state mm. and it, the road for recovery was clear and we yeah. expect them to recover but it was going to be a long and uh, painful journey so you know i had a lot of mm. um, good experiences because of that but problem for me when working as a clinician though is quite a few areas so there's the politics at play politics mm. which encouraged us to sometimes lie that we don't have um, enough hours to do the work and then we're having to work overtime there's mm. understaffing as well mm. um, there's even more of a problem with that in fact a lot of doctors nurses and other healthcare professionals leaving the profession you have to move house every year as well particularly if you're outside wow. of London it's very normal to to move house every year to get a clinical job mm. I really wasn't happy as well with how the doctors it, could feel like a cult sometimes if I'm really honest with you in the NHS mm. um, which mm. gave rise to the idea that you should just work overtime for free wow. and um, there's a lot of idealization going on of, of the consultants that they can do no wrong and trust me they, they can do wrong <laughs> and so as much as I loved working with the patients I was losing myself you know I, I didn't have the energy or the time to do anything for myself mm. um it was quite dark sometimes where um, you look at your relationship status, you you know, you earn okay money, not greatest of money. This is to be very clear. Doctors don't earn mm. that much money. There were times no. when I would take home about one and a half thousand pounds a month for a few wow. months. Okay. So it's not like it's not bad money, but considering oh, the, for what you working do. And no. the responsibility, <laughs> that's not actually great money. No, so, no, no. Yeah, and also the years of study too to get to exactly. that stage is <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly so um you know there, there'll be times where you just look and you're like what's what's actually the point of all of this so yeah. unless you've got a real passion to just work as a doctor and not do anything else 
it's kind of hard to do it like i was doing a lot of music um cooking um oh. fun fact that whilst i was working as a doctor i was on the uk tv program come dine with me the christmas special oh really like in 2013 yeah oh i'll have so, to go um, and watch that now <laughs> yeah that was a lot of fun a lot of fun um <laughs> but i remember acutely less how much that was the best time of my years working as a doctor was actually not working as a doctor was doing oh. that and, you know and it wasn't even Makes because of tv it was just because i was able to do stuff that i really really enjoyed without yeah. um any other pressures with it because don't get me wrong mm. like i said i loved working with patients <laughs> yeah. but there's pressures that you face as a doctor which you just shouldn't you shouldn't be yeah. felt forced to work overtime not because patients are dying like if you if you got a patient who's dying of course you're going to work overtime you don't want them to die mm. but yeah. because the consultant wants you to write down blood results on paper that they could see on computers mm. that's something they have to come in hour early to, to, <laughs> to do that and stuff and yeah it's madness no. so, um so yeah um as alluded to before i wanted to have a career where i could be creative or at least mm. have time to be creative in my personal life but still yeah. be able to help people still be able to impact people's health in a positive way mm. so i knew i went to digital health but it would take me another six months to learn of a career in clinical ux Mm. or specifically UX in general because then when I realized that you could be a doctor or at least a healthcare professional working in UX in healthcare bringing in those years of experience and training into the work that you're doing I was like this is a unique career so yeah. I did masters in human computer interaction I became well read on the topic I, I found mentors and that led me down that path of, of clinical UX and you know wow. now we flash forward to 2024 <laughs> and uh, and yeah it's been a it's been a wonderful wonderful ride that's cool that's cool were there any like obstacles or challenges that you remember facing and how did you overcome those yeah i would say the first biggest challenge was actually not having enough supporters of what i was doing so mm. it's not so much to say that there was loads of people that were actively against what i was doing there mm. just wasn't as many people who were stepping in to actually help me there was mm -hmm. a lot of encouragement for me to continue to work as a clinician even though i was trying to completely change careers so that yeah. was a, a really massive challenge to overcome was being my greatest cheerleader um, yeah. so that i could weather the storm so to speak and, and you know persevere through any yeah. challenges i would be facing with trying to get a job mm. um the other challenges was also being clear on what type of UX professional would I want to be. And I think mm. that can be quite hard for a lot of people. So mm. again, this might be a bit controversial, but I'm going to just say it because we've got to speak up. So first controversial one was about <laughs> the Google UX course. Okay. <laughs> it's about the term um, UX, UI or UI UX. Mm. Yeah. Um, I personally don't like to use that term. I think it's no. a lot, it's a lot of confusion. The vast yeah. majority of people that use the term to describe their own work, they're saying that they are a UI designer yeah. who is used to designing stuff that don't just look good, but are functionally good as well. Yeah. And fair enough, you're a UI designer that does a good job. That's what that means then. Yeah. If you're a UX <laughs> designer and a UI designer, to me, that means that 
you use research findings, whether you have found those findings yourself, someone else might have done the research, mm. but you use research to go through an iterative design process yep. and you use feedback on those designs to make sure that you've got the best design possible. UI designers don't have to do that. UI designers no. can just come up with the design, not that it's similar to a graphic yep. designer, and present that work. So I feel exactly. like there's times when UX UI is being used interchangeably with UX, but it's never mm. really what a UX designer traditionally should be doing. It's less than that. It's mainly UI design using what they believe is the best thing to do for a yeah. design and then yeah. presenting this. Um, so, yeah, I I never thought I would be a UI designer per se, mm. but I knew I would do UI design work. I knew that if I'm going to solve a problem or at least be involved with solving a problem, mm. I will be involved in the visual design component, but that's not yeah. my primary Primary goal is what's the problem? Find yeah. that out as much as possible. Find the best solution to that problem mm. um, as a set of requirements and yeah. then do my part to turn those requirements into reality. So that yeah. might involve wireframing and, and high fidelity um, prototyping. Mm. It may just involve conversation. Regardless, mm. I need to make sure that I've got the, the clear requirements and pass it on to the people that do their part that I do. Because I don't code either. I know a bit about, um, obviously, <laughs> code languages and front-end, back-end development. Like yeah. and stuff, because I teach on these topics. But I'm not a developer myself. No, me neither. No. <laughs> yeah, my lane is research um, and, mm. and UX design. Um, yeah. But it involves by the virtue of that some ui design work and now yeah. a lot of strategy is ux planning project planning um business planning yeah. things like that yeah. um as well and that was a challenge in the beginning because it wasn't so bad when i started out about 10 years ago um mm -hmm. understanding what a ux designer does i think the term mm -hmm. ux ui came up more around the last five six years so yeah. it didn't make it difficult for me but mm. trying to have a title was difficult because uh, even 10 years ago, if you called yourself a UX designer, it was still assumed that you use Sketch, you use Graffle, yeah. um, you used um, Photoshop or Illustrator to come up with design. <laughs> that was your main job. It was yeah. emphasis on designer being visual designer rather than designer being yeah. solver. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, the second problem. And then the final problem, which even to this day I still face at times, is no one's looking for a doctor that does UX. Like they don't assume that they'll ever find a doctor that's doing UX in healthcare. So when I'm found, they're like, oh wow, this is amazing. But mm. they they they're not normally looking for it. And even the term clinical right. UX is not everyday language. So no, it's, no, it's true. common. You you know, you Google clinical UX or even more so you go on LinkedIn and look for job titles that involve clinical UX. There are quite a lot of people using it. And okay. to be blunt, unless unless I really, really have um, missed something, they've all copied me or they've been, um, <laughs> they've seen what I've done or they've taught them or mentored them or something like that. That's what they're using. The father of clinical UX. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one else was using this term before um, yeah. 2016 and 2015 than me. Mm. Um, so, uh, but it's still not everyday language. So there's, there's yeah. still a challenge of getting people to recognize that clinical UX is actually... A, a niche within UX that it is a recognized yeah. um, field that there is yeah. that complexity with 
um, ethics and law or with healthcare mm. economics, we're actually understanding disease assessment and treatment. So it's yeah. more complicated as a result. Mm. Um, so yeah, those those are the the, the challenges. Yeah. It's really people understanding what this work is. <laughs> Um, yeah. The fact that trying to give yourself a title can be a challenge, and mm. um, even just like developing yourself as as a professional is quite lonely, I would say as yeah. well. Um, yeah, when you're going into a field that's so unique, there wasn't a lot of yeah. us in the beginning. But I've mm. I've kind of found my tribe. I kind of created a tribe by teaching um, <laughs> talks, conferences, even being on your podcast, for example, and people come yeah. to me. So that's helped as well, though yeah no that's cool that's cool and again thanks for for coming on um mm -hmm. so maybe for those who are listening and are thinking about transitioning over uh what advice would you give them so yeah i don't know just someone who's never worked in clinical ux maybe they know a mm -hmm. bit of ux they're interested in it what advice would you would you give them on their kind of next step in their journey yeah so there's five things that someone can do whenever they are changing careers in general let alone going into clinical ux um, have some sort of formal study. Formal study doesn't have to mean going to university. It doesn't even have to mean paying a lot of money for a boot camp. It can mm. still mean that you have gone to a book that is dedicated to a topic yeah. and learn from that. Because Absolutely. you don't know what you don't know. So you need to have something that is providing teaching to you in a structured way. Yes. Then there's some self-study. Now that you've, you do know a lot more of a topic, you can discover stuff that you know that you don't know. Mm. And for that, you're developing more understanding, building on what you previously didn't know you didn't know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, first have some formal study. Then you build on that. So it's a bit like when you specialize. Like for someone to first be a generalist, there's loads of topics that they have to understand. But then they realize they want to specialize. They know they want to specialize. Hence <laughs> why they're able to then do some self-study. Um, the third area is to network. And definitely, if it's clinical UX, reach out to me. Mm -hmm. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Technically on Twitter. Sorry, X. It's been renamed, hasn't it? <laughs> um, so reach out to me. I always make my time freely for people. You know, it's very yeah. important. I've got a responsibility, really. If I've come up with this term, I'm telling people to get into this field. I need to be available for people to, <laughs> to hear from me and have conversations yeah. and the like. But network with others that are in this field. Peers, mm. seniors, juniors. It's really important to network with people. Even yeah. as earlier on, create you know, that community. That to me, I gave you advice and guidance, and now you're doing your own podcast. So <laughs> you know, it's it's important to yeah. um, to speak with people. You never know what can come Absolutely. from those conversations, and it's definitely yeah. had a profound impact on my career. It's taken yeah. me around the world. It's earned me money um, by yeah. networking. Yeah, and on um, mine too. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it's all a part of that perseverance that you mentioned at the beginning. It's kind of if it's something you really want to do then mm -hmm. for me the logical step is to network because that's that's your way to to forge forward learn more pick people's brains and that, that's what it. helped me like you say um yeah and to... mentorship yeah mentorship is another big part of that though yeah speaking to people who really have had more experience more exposure to a particular yeah. situation a work environment to yourself getting advice yeah. from that and then finally put all that you've learned into practice. You need to have work experience. Try not yeah, to yeah. just work for free, especially for companies that have got loads of money. There's a tendency <laughs> to do that. I don't encourage that. Yeah. Um, no, if no, a company no. really doesn't have any money, that's different, but try not to work for free, <laughs> but do get work experience to put what you've learned yeah. into practice. 
and using your network get feedback from people using mentors get feedback yeah but you need that formal study of some kind and build on that with yourself study yeah. network mentorship put what you've learned into practice through work experience you do those five things that will make you good at, at clinical ux no doubt yeah yeah and yeah i can vouch for all of those again and 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 for me as well that that was the thing alongside networking was getting that real work experience um because it can be difficult when you don't know like how to get that get that experience as you're thinking well yes. how can i get that experience if i don't get a job but there are there are ways that you can do that like for me like it was for free but it was for a good cause so helping and supporting mm -hmm. non-profit uh, organizations that can be yeah. a way to to get that and also for me it helped me work in a team get that experience of working with the ux designer working with a product manager working with engineers um mm -hmm. even if it was non-profit it still gives you that that experience that you can then also demonstrate on your on your cv on your portfolio so yeah yes, yeah, yeah totally agree thank you dr giles it was a pleasure to to have you on and have this conversation this morning i've been really like excited to get you on uh, for a while so it's happy to i'm happy to to be able to do that no thank you again for for inviting me and again anybody no if you want to reach out just find me dr giles morrison um dot com or just find me on linkedin you can find me i'm there <laughs> Look <forward to> speak. <laughs> he's there yeah i'll share all of all of your your pages your linkedin page etc on on all of the the posts for this podcast so so if anyone is listening check them out and you'll be able to find it cool Wonderful. thank you we'll end it here have a have a good one thank you bye-bye